Hi, I'm Elise Dayeb, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Michelle Jackson, a Class of 2022 National Fellow. Lauren is an Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at Northwestern University. She received her PhD in English from the University of Chicago. She's a contributing writer at The New Yorker, and her essays and criticism have been published in New York Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, and elsewhere. She's currently working on Back, an American Tale, a collection of her essays on American history's belabored cores. So Lauren, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. To start, can you tell me more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with the project this year? Yeah, so... This year, I'll be working on my book called Back, an American Tale, which is a collection of essays um, metaphorically and sort of literally thematically focused on the back, the lumbar, which is such a rich text when it comes to thinking about American culture and American history. And so what I really want to do with this book is is kind of explore sort of all of the underpinnings about what makes America, America in in all its um, sort of multitudinous forms and and really exploring that through this single focal point of the back, which in some ways seems so obvious. You know, it's this thing that really sort of unites all of us as Americans. We all have a back. We all have various relationships to our own backs. And yet, when you sort of think about the way the back is used metaphorically throughout history, when you think about the way the back is used um, in terms of labor, in terms of work, and and who's carrying the load of society, you quickly realize um, that it becomes very, very bifurcated, um, very dispersed as far as how the back actually arises in, in people's lives so differently. And so I think that's you know, in many ways, really beautiful, but can also be very tragic. And and through the medium of writing, of essay writing, of research and scholarship, I just really want to sort of like crack that open and and, and think about that just in a very deep way. So how did this idea come to you, both as a book, but also being able to use the back as this metaphor for something broader? So this sounds like it's the kind of story that I think you know, when a writer or like a director or some sort of um, creative person um, describes a story this way, it sounds very implausible, but I truly had sort of one of those very light bulb moments of just like being awake in the middle of the night and just thinking the back, like, what if I wrote just a whole book on the back? I didn't have really any, you know, I didn't have any topics beyond that. I didn't have any possible essays thought up. I had been, you know, trying to think about in my freelance writing, the in, in my scholarship, the relationship between chronic pain and race and blackness and and gender. And I had been thinking loosely in, in those areas and thinking about the concept of weathering, which is the sort of chronic strain on the bodies of Black people um, as a result of, you know, living in a racist world. But, you know, I hadn't really thought more granularly than that, but I just did have this sort of 
what if I wrote a whole book about the back? What if every single essay was about the back? And that was the the sort of initial nucleus for the project. But as I began to think of myself more seriously and think about the project more seriously, it just grew and grew and grew. And I thought about so many different ways that I could explore this. And eventually it really became a cultural project, a historical project, and, and a project really trying to think about the nation in a new way. Well, it's definitely a very compelling metaphor. And in your application, I believe you made a point that you you stated that the back pain is more deeply an American experience. And so can you just unpack that statement a little bit more? What did you mean by that? And if that is so, why is that the case? I feel like it's a very American experience, mainly because of the because of the the metaphors in the figures that the sort of American founding myth and American myths that we, uh, that persist till today and, and hold weight over us today, you know, they are so incredibly focused on the idea of obscured work, obscured labor of, you know, I think many people are familiar with the sort of bootstraps myth that gets, uh, has been, you know, sort of misappropriated um, by, you know, certain parties in, you know, over the past decades to mean, you know, sort of pulling yourself up on your own, even though, you know, the sort of image is really meant to sort of point to the absurdity of of doing such. Um, But really, yeah, I think there is something, you know, very American about the image of bent over back throughout a lot of, of images um, and culture. And so, well, of course, you know, the entire world, everyone has a back, you know, systems of exploitation, uh, labor exploitation of uh, other sort of cultural significance placed on the image of the backside. Um, you know, it goes much deeper or at least much longer in history um, than the founding of this country. I think for me in this project, Um, because I'm an Americanist, that's my sort of scholarly background, that's my scholarly expertise, and in the interest of of really telling a focused story, um, I did want to focus on the way that this metaphor, but also reflection of sort of true events seems to be again and again this deep well for American myth-making. And so from my understanding in your application, you will be starting the book in the wake of slavery. And so why did you choose that time period as a starting point for your book? And can you talk a little bit more about the framework and the structure that you're hoping to implement as you write the narrative? One of the reasons for beginning with the site of enslavement, and I begin not just at the site of enslavement, but crucially at the site of abolition in the North and really in the 1840s when the abolition movement is really starting to gain steam in the form of membership to anti-slavery societies in the form of press and the form of pamphlets and the publications of things like Frederick Douglass's first autobiography. And, And for me, I thought it was a really interesting place to begin because we have this connection with the image of the scarred back, which is such a resonant image 
throughout depictions of slavery on screen, in, in literature, in television. Um, it seems like, you know, for me, it seems like in cinema, right, you can't have a film about slavery without you know, some glimpse at that, that image, which is in some ways meant to signify, you know, this is how bad slavery is, this is how bad slavery can get, even though, you know, as scholars like Sadia Hartman have, you know, wonderfully shown us, right, slavery's abuses were so multiple and often looked like play, often looked like amusement, often looked like rather banal um, instances of life. But I was really, really trying to think about the resonance of that image of the scarred back. And so it brought me to trying to find the origins of a of an image like what is sometimes called Whipped Peter or a slave called Gordon, um, which took me back to the 1840s and, and took me back to when Douglas was trying to establish himself as an orator and the sort of tug and pull between an audience that is, you know, ostensibly what we call progressive, radical, all that good stuff, right? And yet, you know, what they want from Douglas is, you know, they want his story, they want his physicality, they want his body as a record of what he had been through as a record of the ravages of slavery, um, but what they didn't want is his philosophy. And so this was just such, I think, a really interesting tension that I don't know is always necessarily discussed outside of an academic context, which is the pressures that a sort of liberal or sensibly pro progressive or, again, radical white public can impress upon a singular Black figure. Um, and it was a great way to do what I'm trying to do with the book, which is not just tell history for history's sake, but tell a history of the present that we're in now. And so the book starts at slavery. It will end very much in the present in thinking about um, medical care and the sort of racial bifurcation of medical care and the opioid crisis today. But it will always, throughout the essays, be sort of bouncing between the past and the present, thinking about the development of work culture and office culture and how the invention of the nine to five transformed into the gig economy that we see now um, and really dropping into both small and sort of major cultural moments, you know, from the plantation of the past to the plantation of the present, basically, um, which is something I'm always trying to do just in my work broadly um, in writing generally. I think being in the archives is really, really important, but I also think there's a way that the present can teach us about the past as much as the past can teach us about the present. That's a really great framing um, in terms of how you plan to structure your book. I'm also curious about the gender element. You know, women are more likely than men to experience chronic pain in their adult lives, especially when it comes to the lower back. So how do you aim to examine that relationship between gender and back pain? So when I was writing the proposal for this book and really starting to accumulate the ideas that would become essays or ideas for essays in this book. Gender was such a huge and, and remains such a huge thing to think through. And for this book, it really, at least most specifically, sort of takes shape in this like massive, epic, 
essay that's trying to think about both a history of um, domestic labor in America and also the racial dimensions of that transformation or of that development. Because one of the things that I kept, you know, running into is, you know, I wanted to write, you know, an essay here about the way that, you know, domestic labor is split up or rather not split up, you know, even in a sensibly liberal or progressive household, you know, households where both people identify as as feminists or allies of the feminist movement, right? And yet, um, at least in, you know, in, in couples where one person is a woman and the other person is a man, the woman is still, you know, usually doing the bulk, if not all of the domestic labor um, in the household, even if both people have full-time jobs. And yet I also wanted to talk about the way in which the development of feminism over the past 20 years or the winds of feminism in some ways have been obscured by the ability for affluent women to essentially delegate a lot of the you know, a lot of that domestic labor that, again, they're mostly responsible to onto the shoulders of hired help, whether it's a a Black woman or another woman of color, um, now increasingly an immigrant woman, whether she's Black or or of color in in another way. And then I also want to talk about, you know, Southern Bells and and Scarlett O'Hara and this, this sort of very strange relationship between Mammy figures and Scarlett figures. And you know, I was planning all of these tiny little essays and I, and I realized that actually like, you know, I can't just tell the story of, of gendered labor in, you know, a presumed white affluent household. I can't just talk about how that works in black households of different kinds. It's really, all of these things go together. All of these things are intertwined. Um, and so the way I'm trying to do that in this book is to tell this this just like really sort of epic historical slash quasi cultural fictional. It's, <laughs> I mean, clearly I am still uh, sort of working on it, which is why it's, it's become very hard to describe, but it's really something that I think I have to use the tools of both fiction and sort of narrative personal storytelling in a way to really you know, get to the heart of the matter without leaving anything crucial out. And so it's something that, you know, in some ways it feels like the whole book kind of builds itself around, which is also why I'm like, haven't completed it yet. And I'm also sort of like scared to complete it uh, because I, you know, my fear of course is that it's going to end up being like, I don't know, 80,000 words. And like, that's just, that's just the book. Um, you know, it can't be the whole book. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it and, and or writing it. And, you know, in the meantime, I've just been really trying to absorb all of the different kinds of mythology that we have about quote unquote women's work from basically the 19th century to the present in all its different and, and weird forms. Can you talk more about the research for this book? Um, I mean, it is so uniquely focused on the back. And I'm curious, especially as you're focusing on 
individuals in history and their stories? Like, how are you kind of bringing this together in terms of bringing this theme through each of their stories? My background is in literary criticism, which, and the thing I like about literary criticism, literary studies, at least these days, um, is that it really does feel like a discipline where anything is up for grabs in terms of cultural objects, in terms of bibliography and secondary sources and all sorts of things. You know, I know I have friends who you know, work on art, who work on television, who work on media, who read books on architecture and things like that um, in preparation for their research and their projects. And so I've really adopted that sort of capaciousness when it comes to my work. And so research for this book has included, you know, some of the more conventional things you would expect, old newspapers, um, abolitionist newspapers, um, newspapers from the 19th century, newspapers from the 20th century, the 21st century, etc. But it's also included novels. It's also included um, how-to books, um, books that are, you know, targeted at people who are trying to solve their back pain. It's also included manuals for ergonomic, you know, the latest ergonomic device. Um, I'm also reading a book on Renaissance art and the way the sort of masculine form was really thought of um, from behind. Um, it's actually a book called Seeing from Behind. And, and just Basically, for me, anything memes, anything is really up for up for grabs. I I instead of thinking about my topics in terms of, you know, this is the discipline I'll have to draw from, this is the psychological topic. So I'll have to read psychological texts. I really try to be open to anything I think that might inform my knowledge and my reading of something that I'm dealing with. And so I think that's really the most fun. It's definitely the most fun part. Of, of this project or any other project is getting to explore things that, you know, maybe traditionally academics, you know, aren't supposed to acknowledge or incorporate in their work. But I really think that is a boundary that's really, you know, been torn down in scholarship over the last couple decades. And I am happy to continue with that. Have you come across anything in your research that was surprising to you, both in a good or bad way? Oh, so much surprises me. Um, I think one of the facts that, and this is something I found out early on before I even started writing the book that still continues to surprise me, but it's the fact that the overwhelming majority of diagnosed cases of chronic pain are back pain um, are issues of are people coming in with complaints of back pain, um, chronic back pain, of course, and, you know, to a lesser degree, acute back injuries. And so when we think about something like the opioid crisis, and we think about the, you know, the roles of, you know, that very famous family and in, in sort of perpetuating that crisis, I also think about that sort of singular, seemingly singular issue as a pipeline to painkiller prescriptions. And so it's still a, it's still a figure that I, I'm 
I'm really thinking about and thinking with and, and something that, you know, of course I don't, I'm not going to solve the issue of, of back pain, but I think about the way that the sort of back part of that falls away when we think about the chronic pain problem. And I, and I'm just so curious and still curious why, um, why that is, because I, I don't think we talk about sort of other um, chronic illnesses or, or chronic ailments in the same way. And so similar to how back pain kind of gets, gets buried in this, just the sort of blanket statement of chronic pain. I also think about the way the back itself gets kind of obscured when we think about the body in general. I mean, that actually is a really great segue into my next question. You know, the other side of back pain, as you said, of course, is pain management, which is often associated with issues like affordable health care um, and also the opioid epidemic, you know, for people who do have access and then just get overprescribed pain medication. What do you hope your book can add to the conversations happening right now with regard to these issues? Above all, I hope my project can lend a cultural history of how we got here. I'm not a medical doctor. I can either solve the problem of chronic back pain um, or overprescription or substance dependence. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to think about present day phenomena as, as sort of uniquely of the present, by the present, for the present. And I can kind of sympathize and empathize with, with that, that thought, but I do think there are a lot of sort of cultural values that undergird, you know, why someone needs to, or feels the need to, or has to continue working even against uh, their sort of body's will to persist. There's a reason why we think it's better to have people numb their pain so they can get back to work on their meager wages and and feed their family. Um, All of these are, you know, it's not just a matter of physiology, but a matter of ideology. And, And I think that's really where the humanities, where criticism, historiography can do its best work, which is to to think about our predicaments in the long view. And so I hope this book does some of that, you know, helps elucidate the long view of why we think about our bodies the way we do, um, why certain bodies are thought of as expendable and some aren't. All of that I, you know, I'm always hoping to uh, clarify in my work um, through ways both expected um, and hopefully unexpected. So this will be your second book, if I'm correct. Um, You published a book in 2019. And I'm curious about your writing process this time around. What are some lessons that you learned from writing your first book that you're now applying into your second book that hopefully might be making it easier? But just curious about how you're approaching this book differently, if at all. This time, I'm definitely giving myself more time (laughs) to write it. That's for sure. More time to sit in that spot where I'm not totally sure how a piece of writing is going to turn out or how an essay is going to turn out or what its message is going to be, if it even has one, Um, which is something I didn't do for myself with the first book for, I think, a variety of reasons, a number of which, 
you know, have to do with just being a first time author and sort of kind of wanting to rip the bandaid off and, you know, having wanted to write a book for so long and finally getting to do it and, and kind of just not necessarily rushing through it, but maybe just sort of cutting off curiosity at certain corners um, in order to get the job done and, and sort of say that I was finished and, and, you know, let out that very long breath. I think in this case, I'm definitely taking my time, hopefully not, you know, too much time, but, um, you know, not, you know, allowing myself to be kind of flexible with the material and let the material sort of tell me which way I need to go, which is definitely a, a liberating feeling. So as you embark on the fellowship this year, where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? A year from now, I would like to have a solid full draft of this book. Maybe not the the final, 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 final dot, you know, doc file <laughs> um, that that it'll be. But I would like to have start to finish something that I could call a book, which is not what I have <laughs> at present, but just something where you know, you have it in hand, which means you can start making all the fun or quote unquote fun um, tweaks and alterations and and nipping and all of that sort of stuff um, to the book. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to working and, and speaking and collaborating with um, the other fellows and, and really being inspired by their work and, and getting through the writing, the bulk of the writing for this book and have something that I'll be proud of um, by the end of the fellowship. Great. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Lauren. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.